0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And society has got you pegged. You're Asian or Hispanic, black, maybe white, Native American, you're something. But whatever it is, they've got you figured out. They talk about you like they know you, like you're part of a collective, a hive mind. See, they take a group, and pair it with either an adjective or a noun. You've got white this, or black that. There's too many of you, and too few of them. You talk like this long enough, it can be easy to slip into a way of thinking about other people that makes them sound and feel so different, so distinct from you, that you can lose sight of the fact that they're really, actually, not. Our guest this week has written extensively about his journey to discovering our human commonalities. Rockman Gozi is the host of the Talking Sh podcast and author of the memoir, Inner Demons. He's a system and data analyst with over 20 years in corporations that include Fortune 500 players in energy, pharmaceuticals, and communications. You can follow him on Twitter at TheRocksWorld and learn more at rocksworld.com. He goes by rock, so I will say Rock. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Hey, thank you for having me. And just a quick clarification so that people aren't confused. I go by ROC instead of ROCK, if anyone cares. You got it. Yeah. So when I first reached out to
0: you to bring you on, there were a host of things I could have talked about with you. You've got a podcast talking that we mentioned in the intro there Mm -hmm. that at times feels very thematically and topically similar to this one. You work, as I mentioned earlier, as an IT business analyst in Manhattan, having worked for several Fortune 500 companies. And I do love talking about technology. You're a motivational speaker and author. As I referenced earlier, the book Inner Demons is an autobiography that details your life growing up. So there was plenty for us to discuss. Mm -hmm. But as I prepared for our interview and read your essays and selections from your novel, I realized that we had much more in common than just our shared love of podcasting. (laughs) I really connected not only with how vulnerable and direct you are with your writing, but how similar many of our emotional and touchstones are. Not to mention the fact that we grew up about 30 minutes from one another in the Bay Area. So I thought we could talk about our experiences growing up using touchstones from your life as points of conversation and comparison.
1: So, yeah, I mean, that, that all sounds very awesome. When you did tell me that you grew up in the Bay Area and sort of the general sort of umbrella that we would discuss, I was very interested because, I mean, when is how often do you get to speak with someone who grew up in your same metro area to talk about all these social things and sort of our independent paths to growing up? And how old are you, by the way? I didn't ask. Yeah, I'm 38. 38. So I'm 44. So I'm a little bit older than you, but there's a lot of overlap there. So yeah, man, this is going to be great.
0: Yeah, I think that there are a lot of similarities that we have from our time growing up in terms of interests and kind of the ways that our minds work, but also distinct differences. And I think that one of the things that you and I have in common, just based on what I've seen you post on Twitter, in your podcast, and your writings, is I think you and I are both very fascinated in talking about and understanding our own identities and how we relate to both other people and to ourselves. And you strike me as a very introspective person who thinks a lot about not only himself, Rock, in the world, but also how Rock thinks about Rock, which is, <laughs> that is uh, something that I think about a lot in regards to myself. I'm almost in my head too much, yeah. <laughs> so the podcast offers me an opportunity to kind of get out of it.
1: Yeah, that's very astute. It's very very astute and true. It was difficult growing up like that. As you could probably imagine, I mean, you know, everyone has a fair amount of self-consciousness, but when that is sort of really hardwired and then, you know, just being an analyst by nature, um there were there were some really really rough years. It's very meta on top of meta. I do think a lot about obviously about myself, but I think about myself thinking about myself (laughs) to make sure that I'm being consistent with Mm. what I value, my plan it is that I'm working on. Being very consistent, being dependable and being loyal are things that are very, very important to me. And so I guess that collection of virtues that I aspire to does tend to make one focus on themselves probably more than is maybe healthy <laughs> <at first>. <laughs> <laughs> well i'm not sure if, if it's an issue of healthy or unhealthy so
0: to speak right in that yeah. an over manifestation of any quality can become unhealthy if we let it mm-hmm. as in introspection and i'm sure you know this introspection on its own is not an unhealthy trait but if you get into a spiral of introspection which we'll discuss as we kind of go through your biography yeah. it can become a kind of hell that you can trap yourself in. if you find yourself thinking about your own thoughts or your own actions too much you can become trapped in kind of a cyclical
1: recursive tornado of your own thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you explained it that way because it is sort of like a an inverse of the Guggenheim Museum. I mean, I live here in <laughs> Manhattan, so people are familiar with that museum and has the very famous spiral, but imagine that going down, mm-hmm. right? You just sort of Circle in very recursive manner, you just kind of corkscrew your way down into your own psyche, and finding a way out of that can be very difficult if you do not ground yourself in certain yes. things or, or set certain waypoints to focus on and pull you out. And it's not something that you can't learn to not only just deal with but maybe harness, but it takes practice. It's very lonely, and at times it can be very painful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's just
0: get into it. Let's start with your childhood. Mm -hmm. I'm going to quote a passage from your novel, uh, your autobiography, Inner Demons, and we can just start from there. Okay. So you say, quote, whatever trust I had in my mother was muted by her introduction of Otis into my life. I loved my mother more than anything in the world, but at times I questioned her love for me. Yeah. You write with such immediacy and it connects with me in a way that it's actually difficult for me not to get emotional reading about your stuff here. So if I pause, it's only because I'm connecting with it. So well, damn, I love, man. yeah, <laughs> I have a very visual imagination. And so uh, when I read about people discussing their own past and their own pain, I kind of automatically kind of imagine my own childhood. And obviously the touchstones won't be the same, but I kind of feel like I'm teleported back to moments that are similar. So yeah, with that being said, let's continue. Mm-hmm. She always seems so stressed and I suspected my presence was the primary factor for this. There were incredibly tender moments like resting my head on her lap as she drove home from her second job of playing music at church. I would close my eyes and count the turns and stops as we made our way home at night. However, fond I was of those memories, they were never enough to alleviate the depression that consumed me after one of Otis's beatings. End quote. So, let's talk a little bit about how your relationship with your mom and your relationship with Otis kind of shaped the
1: child you became. Yeah, I adore my mother. I mean, everyone does, but outside of her being my mother, as a person, as a character, I find her exceptionally fascinating. And I actually did a podcast with her maybe two months ago. So that is available for people to sort of listen in on who she is as a person. But so I always felt very blessed to have her specifically as my mother uh, for some things that we can probably get into later. But when she introduced Otis to me, someone whom she met and had begun dating, immediately I didn't like him. But it was dismissed as most people would do to a what five, six-year-old. They don't know what they're talking about, quote unquote. However, I did know what I was talking about. And people over time have found out that I've always known what I was talking about. That's that introspection <laughs> introspection part. And so when she didn't listen to me and they were married. And then my relationship with him developed. I was just very disappointed in her because it was her job to look after me and to protect me and to put me above any and everything else within reason, of course. And I felt that she had let me down. And I felt that she wasn't listening or appreciative of how serious the situation was to me. Regardless of how everyone else felt about it, I felt very, very strongly about the situation and I was prepared to act on how I felt if no one else was was ready to act on my behalf. And so I felt very distant from her during that time. And then the subsequent years afterwards, she and I had a very very contentious relationship up until I was maybe around 12, 13 years old, perhaps maybe even 14, because I was trying to unravel myself from a deep well of anger that I had with my stepfather or who soon became my ex-stepfather with my mother. And then just as an extension, the world around me, because I felt that no one was really looking out for me And so I had to figure it out on my own. And while that was very frustrating, that frustration felt very powerful at the same time.
0: Yeah. I relate to that in my own small way. The passages that I read from your novel, although they didn't directly relate to my own upbringing, I came from a kind of stable middle-class family. My parents were together since the day I was born and they are still together today. They're They've been married for 40 years. Some of the stuff that you were relating in your discussions of your relationship with Otis were similar in emotional content to stories I heard from my own father and his relationship with his dad, and specifically the relationship that he had with his mom in relation to his father. Hmm. And I mentioned this on a earlier podcast, I think with Rod Graham, and I I I kind of, yeah, (laughs) I like Rod. I kind of obscured the identity of the person I was talking about in that podcast because I hadn't asked his permission Mm -hmm. before talking about it, but I've since talked about it with him since that episode came out. I was talking about my dad, and the story is my dad's father, I never got a chance to meet him. Both my dad's parents passed before I was born, but my dad's dad had some fantastic qualities from the stories that I've been told, but he did have the occasional hard time holding down a job. Either- Because of something that happened at work or because he decided to quit. And as my father has told to me, usually all reasons that were within his control that he kind of blamed on other people. Mm. But that inability for him to keep down a job would cause the family to move around central California where my dad was raised in the fifties and sixties. And there was one time when my father was 12 or 13 years old and his mother got all the kids together after their father had just quit or lost a job of some kind which usually meant that they were going to have to move again and mm-hmm. have their childhood uprooted again. Right. She gathered all the boys together and said in a way to build up her husband and make him look good in front of her sons, she said you'll never be half the man your father is. And yeah. And see the thing there is is that that saying that she said to my dad and her other sons in an effort to build up her husband and to make him look good kind of destroyed a uh, part of my dad for decades because yeah. the way he interpreted it was was if I can never be half the man my father is and my father can't keep a job what kind of man will I be and so it's not identical to the relationship that you had with Otis, but I was reading about your relationship with him and there were similar emotional touchstones there that were not identical, but in terms of the things that he would say to you, right? Like yeah. any challenge to his authority, this I'm quoting now, any yeah. challenge to his authority was met with meanness and cruelty. He didn't believe in sparing the rod. An elbow on the table was met with a rap across the knuckles. Any accomplishment was greeted with a jeer as if any success achieved by my mother or me was more luck than dedication and hard work. And things that he said included, what, so you think you're smart now? That's what you get for hanging around me. Stick around long enough and you might be somebody someday. You weren't anything until I came along. These were the sentiments of the man who was my stepfather, end quote. Yeah. And what I want to get at here is a question that I imagine my own dad would ask his mom if he had the chance. And maybe you've talked about this with your mom. Mm -hmm. It's really more the question of when did you begin to see your mother as a full... I hope this question comes across the way that I'm intending it because... No, ask it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, When did you see your mother as a peer in addition to just your mom? Because for me, that happened in regards to my parents around somewhere in my early 20s when I began to see my parents not just as people who had it all figured out or people who made every decision with full insight and clarity, but rather as individuals who were kind of sometimes getting it right and sometimes getting it wrong and stumbling around in the dark sometimes. And when I had that realization in my 20s, it was both terrifying and it allowed me to forgive them for many things that I thought they had done on purpose. Does that make sense?
1: It makes perfect sense. And I touch on it. As I alluded to before, I was always aware of the mistakes that other people were making, right? I don't know, call it a superpower. I always had sort of a well of disappointment in in my parents. I was very upset that my sister was born. My sister is three and a half years younger than I am, and I do remember, and I also I can still tap into a well of resentment for having siblings. All of my siblings, and I have, let's say, my sister, and then I have my half-sister and my half-brother, they all know this about me. And they all know that I don't mean it personally. They just understand that I can rationally make the case that, yes, my life would have been materially better if I didn't have any siblings. So this is the personality that everyone has had to deal with. So I don't necessarily blame people for their reactions to me over, over the years. But there was another part of recognizing that not only were my parents or the adults around me making mistakes, but also realizing that the mistakes that they were making were just an extension of the childhoods that they had had and the parents and the environments that they grew up in. So for instance, with Otis, And I devote a fair section in the book, giving Otis some backstory. I didn't want Otis to be a two-dimensional villain in my story because I don't think that's fair to him as a person. And also he had a long-term friendship with my mother and she told me about him over the years and growth. And obviously I touch on the fact that after they were divorced, he came and he would just do handyman work for her all the time. They were friends. But I touch on Otis's backstory because he grew up in Arkansas during the 30s and the 40s. And from what I understand, his parents treated him very harshly. And then you can imagine Arkansas during the early part of the 20th centuries wasn't a very hospitable place for Black people in general, but a young Black boy who was fairly headstrong and Confident within himself as Otis was. Yeah, I'm sure he was hit and sort of talked down to and and really grew up in this harsh environment. And so as he grew up, that is how he understood how to raise children. And so he wanted to instill discipline in me and he wanted to create this upstanding guy or upstanding man. He just didn't know how, he didn't have the tools. And then I look at my mother. And I had to understand that she grew up in a very domineering family, if you will. Her family is very religious. She was one of literally a a dozen children in the middle. So she was always in a quest to figure out who she was. And then she met my father and they were married at 21. I was born when my mother was 22, my father was 24. So in hindsight, now that I'm 44, I look back and I'm like, well, they were children. Um, and even at the time, and I believe I was 13 or 14 when I really sort of developed this well of compassion for them. Like, man, dude, they're just trying their best. And even my father, who was around, my father was always around. My father actually beat up my stepfather. That was a nice pivotal moment there. But he grew up, his parents were partiers and alcoholics, and they're abusing him. It's it's that generation. I mean, our parents were sort of the baby boomers, but that greatest generation. Enough can't be said about the amount of trauma that they absorbed in their lives from whether it's growing up in the Depression, going off to fight the Second War, maybe going off to fight the Korean War, the huge shifts in culture and society around them. The fact that things like mental health were still, what, 40 years from really becoming something that people talked about. And so I was able to, again, with that introspection and that recursiveness, was able to sort of look at them, but then sort of drill into their backstory to realize that they are just the current iteration of threads that have been going on through all of history. And so when I was able to sort of see them in perspective, that they were just trying as best they could. My fear of my parents or the pedestal that one puts their parents on, that disappeared. I mean, it was always crumbling, but that just disappeared. But also I developed like this well of compassion for them, particularly my mother, because as I sort of alluded to, she was everything. She was the foundation. She was holding my entire world together with her very large, but in a petite frame hands. She plays piano, so her hands are (laughs) <laughs> she has big hands but i just saw what she was doing and holding on to this life that she was creating for us just out of grit and will i mean i had to respect that in the sense of i started to see my parents as peers i started to chill out on them a little bit or a lot of bit because i'm like they're doing their best who am i to like give them more problems than they than they already have yeah there was
0: this essay that i tried to write years ago but i never found a way to kind of bring it full circle but the nugget of the idea of the essay kind of stuck with me, and it's this idea that you can think of kind of familial history, especially families that have dysfunction in them, which is every family. let's every be family, honest right? my my dad said every family is dysfunctional, and if you ever come across a family that seems functional, run yeah because <laughs> <laughs> it's not real, yeah, but I like to imagine it as kind of like a waterfall, right, with just kind of cascades of pain that mm-hmm. just transferred down and down, and down into the next generation. And that pain cascades because for too long, and even today in the 21st century, but especially in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, long before therapy was mainstreamed. And I'm speaking as someone who 10 years ago, I couldn't bring myself to go to therapy for far too long because I was ashamed that I couldn't deal with it myself. But you, you go back to the 1930s and 50s, And the way that that pain manifests itself is usually through unhealthy means, either through things like alcohol and drug abuse, Mm -hmm. physically abusing people that you love, who in your heart, you don't want to. But the way that that pain manifests itself is usually something that's really unhealthy. Fear. Yeah, that's exactly right. And only by recognizing and confronting the pain can you make something truly constructive from it, right? That's the only way really short circuit it. and But you have to face it. You have to be like, okay, this is passed down to me from this person who got it from this person who got it from this person. And you can really trace it back all the way to the beginning of time, like a reverse dominoes. And you have to short circuit it by confronting it and realizing that, okay, what am I going to do with all this pain that's been handed down to me?
1: Yes. That's a tough thing to do, but it's such a release when you do it. Absolutely. I mean, I know my father doesn't drink specifically because his parents drank. And so that was sort of a marker that he laid down that it's not going to continue past this, at least for him. And so, yeah, my father's not an alcoholic and I guess I'm not an alcoholic. I actually don't like drinking. My mother... Her situation is a little bit different. She just likes taking care of people. My mother's just the most giving person. So her situation is a little bit different because yeah, her willingness to be a giver and her job as being a mother, eh, that kind of overlaps. I would say Otis. Otis wasn't the most educated person. He graduated high school, but that was it. He was very keen on education and it was through his urging that i was taken out of the private school that i was in and placed in a public school by using his his sister and brother-in-law's address they lived in oakland hills so we used their address so i could then go to the schools in the hills because they were marginally better than the ones down down on the the flatlands that's what we call not the hills in oakland it's the flatlands So even though I wasn't his child, that was something that he wanted to break from his lineage. He wanted to champion education because education was denied to him. And so while the trauma and abuse gets shifted and moved through family lineages, you have heroes within families who take it upon themselves to shift the arc of the family, even if it's just a little bit, right? And those are the real heroes of all of our lives, the aunts and the uncles and the grandfathers and the fathers, sisters, mothers, whomever who decided, you know what, I'm going to take this piece of trauma and I'm going to, as you say, confront it, deal with it, and we're going to leave it here. We're going to drop those bags off and we're just not going to carry them forward. And that's generational wealth.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And it's something that Chloe Valdery talks a lot about. She was a previous guest on this show. Mm -hmm. But that idea of talking about wealth, not only in terms of material wealth, but also emotional and spiritual wealth, is a really big part of her work. And I think it's so key. And I think that often we don't talk about that enough in society, whether it's because of the capitalistic nature of our obsession with things Mm -hmm. or a decline of spirituality in general. But the idea of harvesting spiritual and emotional generational wealth is something that I feel we should talk more about in society. And I'm so glad that that you talk about it. And I just want to like really put a point on this mm-hmm. because it's not something that a lot of people do. So hopefully I'm not going to blow up your ego here, but <laughs> the fact that you're as kind as you are to Otis and the fact that you can separate the things that he did to you that hurt you as a child from the ways that he as an adult was trying to struggle and deal with his own pain and the positive sides of him is something that I just think is commendable because a lot of people don't ever take the time either to process that or to make that delineation for understandable reasons. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna call those people out for being worse, right? Because sometimes right. you just you don't want to let go of the anger for reasons that I can understand. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you were able to separate those things without forgiving, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's it doesn't seem like you're forgiving him for oh, the things that he did that were bad to you, but yeah. you're placing it in a larger context to create a fuller picture of a man who was complicated and in pain in his own ways.
1: Yes. It comes across as kindness, and I guess it is kindness, but the way that I got there is probably anything but kind. Two things. My first name, Rahman it technically means the most compassionate. In Islam, there are Allah or God has 99 attributes. There are very similar things in Christianity, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, all that other stuff. There is a similar and sort of codified list in Islam. So Rahman is the very first one. It means the most compassionate or the most benevolent or there are different translations for it. So I always sort of had that, hanging over me. I say hanging over me because that's what it felt like for a long time, right? something um, you had to live up to. Something that I had to live up to that growing up in Oakland, having a name that meant the most compassionate, that wasn't necessarily the the vibe that I was trying to put off, right? I mean, <laughs> it wasn't the vibe that you wanted to put out there because it was, you know, it wasn't the easiest environment to grow up in. So that's one half of it. I've always had this thing that I kind of had to live up to. The second part, and I think probably day to day, the more impactful one is the fact that as a person, so my therapist said that I have low need of affiliation or some other term for it. Basically, it means I don't really care what people think, or I'm indifferent when it bumps up against anything that I want. So, As I have gone through life and even my understanding of myself at the time, I was an aggressive, manipulative person. I wasn't necessarily a good person. And so, as these things were happening to me, I never felt necessarily a sense of victimization in terms of breaking my spirit. It was just fuel on a fire that was already there. So, as I progressed through it, it's not to say that it didn't affect me in, some, in certain negative ways. I don't want to say I just cruised through this. I mean, I'm, I point out very specifically in different ways it affected me, perhaps gave me PTSD in certain ways of where my already quick temper became quicker. My propensity for violence became more so. I had to rein in for my own self-preservation. I mean, even with Otis, and I touch on this in the chapter, I mean, I opened up the book with this, I was going to kill him. I had formed it in my mind that if someone didn't do anything, then I guess I was going to have to do it. And I was dead serious about it. And then there was the fight with my father that Otis picked and lost. And then very quickly thereafter, they ended up getting divorced. So I never had the opportunity to see if I would really follow through on it. But again, as I say, as the years went on and I saw myself hurting other people, or this thing that i had that was already sort of indifferent to the pain and feelings of other people as i saw that sort of growing i had to rein myself back in i went into isolation in a lot of ways because i didn't trust myself around other people through that self-preservation having this name and then obviously going through life and learning other lessons my well of compassion for other people it grew and it grew because I I had to learn how to have more compassion for myself. And as I developed it for myself and all of my problems, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I should probably give everyone else a, a little bit of a break.
0: Yeah, and you talk about that feeling of isolation that was, some of it seemed self-imposed. You were kind of a lone wolf of a kid. You mm-hmm. liked spending time alone mm-hmm. either in your room or riding around on your bike when you were in your early teens. But it was exacerbated by situations that happened in middle school, which ultimately led you to the first person that you called really a true friend, which was Remy. So I want to read a little bit from your autobiography that led you to that point. Sure. Quote, entering middle school during this period added another layer of variables to decipher. For the first time in my life, I was acutely aware of my blackness. What bothered me wasn't that I was usually the only black kid in many of my classes, but the fact that it was now a defining characteristic. I remember hurting my knee in class one morning, and when the nurse arrived asking which child needed help, my teacher casually said, quote, the black boy in the corner there, end quote. I never felt he intended it in any other way but to positively identify which child was in distress. However, as all eyes turned to me to acknowledge the obvious, I hated him. I hated him because he was a symbol of authority, and to that authority, I was easily summed up. All uniqueness casually dismissed, I was just a black kid in a corner, hurting. While there had been different reading and math groups in elementary school, everyone was still in the same classroom. By middle school, the implied sorting was made explicit. This systemic segregation was mirrored by the social bonds and choices of friendships the children made. And then later... My growing sense of isolation was exacerbated by the fact that i didn't know how to actively make friends i don't think i ever really cared for a friend personally until i met remy he was the oddest kid i'd ever met he was exceedingly preppy having attended one of the elite primary schools in oakland i don't recall him wearing much else besides a variety of brightly colored polo shirts in those first few months (laughs) he was smart confident exceptionally friendly and lacked any discernible sense of guile or pretense all the things I felt I was missing, end quote. So I'd just love to hear you talk a little bit more about your friendship with Remy, what his friendship brought out in you and any kind of reflection on your own personalities and how you felt about yourself in relation to him.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you picked up on that passage because my girlfriend and I were talking about the book on my podcast and we we're actually talking about that part next week. But yeah, Rem, because I'm so very introspective I'm acutely aware, at least from my perspective, of things that I'm missing or things that I want to work on. And so when I met Rim, he seemed just the opposite of everything that I was. He seemed very happy and easygoing, where I was anything but happy and I wasn't, there was nothing easy about dealing with me. So many different things. I just liked him because, as I was saying, he was just such a genuine person. And I was drawn to that. I felt a need to to be around that. And, and I don't know, maybe even protect it in a certain sense. When I wrote the book, and I mean, obviously he's one of my best friends and my brothers, and he read it. He told me his perspective of our interaction. And from his perspective, he had gone to this elite private school his entire life. He didn't know anything besides that, this very upper middle class existence. I say, if you can imagine Carlton Banks from The Fresh Prince, that's who he was. And so when he went to middle school, he was very unsure of himself because now you're, I mean, you go from this elite private school to An Oakland public school, which is not, I mean, you're literally getting tossed into like the deep end. It wasn't the worst school in the city, it's actually one of the better middle schools, but still there was an energy there that he wasn't ready for. And he tells me that he didn't know where he fit in. He didn't know whether he had to, you know, play tough to run with the tough kids. And he didn't know who he needed to be. And so when he met me, and I seemed to be, just as tough as anyone, even though that wasn't the card that I led with. He liked me because he could just be himself around me. I wasn't asking him to to be tough or do some outlandish stunt to prove how hard he was or how loyal or down he was. I was like, nah, man, you were just cool with me by showing up. And so he always felt a breath of Relief that he met me because he was like, Well, I can just be myself around Rock. And that was good enough. And I just wanted him to be himself around me because that was good enough. And listen, we met, I mean, we were 12. And that's one of my best friends to his day his mother, his father, his brother, aunts, grandparents. I love them like they're my family. They love me like I'm their family. It's one of these things. And I think he was just one of the first people to make me feel cool about myself because he was a maybe from his perspective, he seemed nerdy, but he was a cool kid. And very quickly, he became one of the cool kids because I mean, to meet him, you just love the guy. Everyone loves the guy. And he's not nearly as nerdy as Carlton Banks in, in actuality. But I always felt very blessed to be able to call him a friend and to be able to hang around him. I'm like, man, if someone as cool as him thinks I'm cool enough to hang around, that must say something about me. And it it made me want to be a better person, right? The better person that I am and, and kind and good to people, they're good to me. And so that's when I really began to establish real friendships. Um, Yeah, just real friendships.
0: Those kinds of male friendships that you have and that I've had with guys who (laughs) are out of your league, right? Seemingly at first blush can be transformative in their own ways in the same way that dating a hot girl can be because it makes you reconsider your own self-conception. I think you just, you touched on something I think really key there. I had a similar friendship growing up i also met him when i was i think 12 or 13. he was a all-star athlete and very popular kind of a a nerd but like just good looking popular guy super charismatic kind of owned whatever room he was in Mm -hmm. and i was kind of shocked that he would want to hang out with me because i always kind of conceived of myself as this kind of like nerdy guy who liked writing and reading and and (laughs) things that were very exactly the opposite of the things that he was into But the friendship that we had was just completely natural and something that I never would have guessed would have been possible if I had just judged him by the trappings of his existence rather than getting to know him as a person. Yeah. And I think that him being friends with me changed how I perceived myself and gave me more confidence about. My own abilities as a person to interact with people who I quote unquote thought were out of my league, either socially or romantically or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it also gave me a much better understanding of the things that we think about other people are usually not accurate, in that we imagine a version of a person when we see them before we know them, who we kind of construct in our minds out of stereotypes and things we know from television and other things. You're like, oh, that person would never want to be friends with me because you know all your flaws. You know all the things that you're insecure about, but of course you don't know their mind. So of course you don't know the things that they're insecure about, the things that worry them, that keep them up at night, the things they second guess until you get to know a Remy, right? Until you get to really spend those long nights with them or just wandering around on your bikes and getting to know a person on a deeper level. And you begin to see that they're not this kind of two-dimensional construction that you've made in your mind of the cool kid or the hot girl, right? Right, right. But they are, in fact, a fully three-dimensional human being that you've judged very quickly, only to realize that most of your judgments were wrong.
1: Yeah. I mean... When he and I had this conversation, and it was it was maybe three years ago now, mind you, our relationship had been for 30 years at this point. And he is sharing his perspective of our childhood. And I had to I had to rethink my entire life because his passage in the book was me telling him how much I loved and appreciated him and how his friendship allowed me to explore new paths that just various paths. He's telling me all of the things that I did for him. And I was very proud of the fact that there were a group of us and we would all go, we would hang out all over the Bay Area doing all sorts of things. And I thought that we collectively were keeping each other safe. Everyone got home okay. No one was getting harassed by cops. We were avoiding cops. We were having a great time under the radar, making it home okay. And I always attribute it to just being around great guys from great families and whatever. Rem is telling me, he was like, no, man, all of that was you. He was like, you were Google before there was a Google. You knew how to get everywhere. You knew how to do everything. He was like, you just understood the world in a way that we didn't. So whenever Rock said, this is the plan, we were like, yeah, sure. Fine. Because they trusted that I was going to make a plan. Everyone was going to be included. Everyone was going to have fun and everyone was going to get home safe because that's really what I'm just doing for myself. I'm going to make sure that I'm okay, (laughs) regardless of what's going on. I'm going to be off. I'm going to be fine. And Rem is telling me of how much I was a leader for them. And I didn't realize it. I think to kind of expand on your point, We don't know who we are until we get into these relationships with people and they give us the opportunity to grow and expand into the people who we always, I guess, dreamed of being and maybe ignored the fact that we were already that person the whole time, but they knew.
0: Yeah. In some ways, it's like they're holding a mirror up for you. So you can see a part of your body. You couldn't see that was mm. behind you. Right. Yeah. So like they're showing you a part of yourself that was there the whole time, but you couldn't see it, right. so to speak in a weird sort of metaphorical way. <laughs> right, right. my buddy, the athlete, the so-called confident athlete, when we were older, I think in our twenties is when he kind of shared a similar revelation with me where he told me if it weren't for me, cause I think I kind of played your role in many ways where i was always the one organizing events i was the one getting everyone together i'm just a natural extrovert who likes making things happen and i enjoy hanging out with the people that i care about and so i'm constantly looking for ways to get them together and he would tell me that if not for me planning those events and getting him out of the house and getting people together and giving him something to do when he wasn't at practice that he wouldn't have been nearly as social. And I couldn't actually wrap my mind around it because every time I saw him at social events, usually ones I organized or school events, so to speak, he was always super confident, affable, just outgoing, so sure of himself. And I couldn't wrap my mind around the idea that if not for other people pushing him to go out and socialize, that his natural default state would have been staying at home. Yeah, And so... It's those instances in which people in your life who you can only appreciate for just what they do for you, really until they articulate it and give you an idea of what you've done for them, do you really get a fuller understanding of yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's that's exactly how I felt. Let's go to Morehouse. A buddy of mine went there and actually, I just wanted to ask you. Was there a full-sized portrait of Samuel L. Jackson in the study hall when you went? Or was no. that later? <laughs>
1: that, was, that, that was later. That was okay. later.
0: I wanted to see if I could snag you with a specific detail because I heard from him yeah. that Sam Jackson went there for two years and was a cheerleader for Morehouse. Yes. Yes. And that there was a full-bodied image, of at least when my buddy went there, of Sam Jackson
1: in the study hall that everyone got a kick out of. But So Sam wasn't... <laughs> He wasn't a star when I was going there, so I started school in '94, and I want to say he had played some bit parts in a couple of Spike Lee movies. Right? Um, he was. This is right he, around Die Hard three, right? No, Die Hard was later. So 94, that's when Pulp Fiction came out. Oh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he, he was just exploding, right? That's then. when he really just sort of hit the map. He had been in a couple of, like I said, a couple of Spike Lee joints. Mm-hmm. He was in Juice. Mm-hmm. If anyone remembers the movie Juice, he ran the arcade in Juice. My favorite character of his, he was the guy robbing McDowell's and coming to America. <laughs> he was the guy with the shotgun. I yeah, love yeah. that role. So Pulp Fiction was the one that really sort of broke him out and made him a star, if you will. So that was after the fact, and it wasn't that big of a thing when I was going through. That makes Um, sense. He wasn't the icon that he He is today. He wasn't the icon. (laughs) Our big icon at the time relative to Morehouse. I mean, we always have uh, MLK, but Spike Lee, right? Mm, He was really just sort of really moving into prominence then, you know, X had come out I believe the year or so before. So, that's what that was.
0: Yeah. To talk a little bit more about your time at Morehouse. Yeah. You talk about your experience first coming into Atlanta and you say, quote, as I ventured into the city, I found Atlanta to be the most racially segregated place I'd ever been. While I'd encountered variations of this on the liberal West Coast, the dividing line was more economic than ethnic. In California, if you could afford it, you could have it. This was not the feeling I received in Atlanta. Black people lived south of downtown and white people lived north, regardless of income. The lack of diversity, aside from black and white, was difficult to comprehend. I missed my Hispanic and Asian brothers and sisters and the energy they manifested, end quote. And while I've never been to Morehouse, per se, I have visited the south and also parts of Chicago and outside of Chicago. And Mm -hmm. it really is striking, like even today, if you go to certain parts of the United States, like... Yeah. I guess it really recalls what was, what was the US for most of its history, which is white people over here, black people over here. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. And yeah. when you first experienced that, for me, it was uh, like New Orleans and Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you come from a place like the Bay Area, it is striking.
1: Yeah. Obviously, growing up in the Bay Area, my mother's family is from Portland. So I would go up there. There were hardly any black people at all up there. So, Portland didn't really have a black part of town you had a part of town where more black people lived but it wasn't yeah. like the black part of town it's portland, considering Oregon.
0: the considering the history of portland your family members were probably the quote unquote black part of town we considering were how many people live there
1: so so actually there's a, a joke that uh <laughs> i would make that if you were black in Portland, you were either related to me or my family had known your family for 50 60 years. And this yeah. is a very true statement. I met a girl in high school, turns out her mother my uncle, they went to school from like kindergarten all the way through high school. It's yeah. really really like that. So obviously I knew knew of white people, went to school with them, Asians, Hispanics, whatever, but in Atlanta, it was just different. You could feel the long-standing history like all before you. There was just a, a definitive bifurcation of the city. White people live north of downtown slash I-20 and black people live south. Obviously you have families here and there. It's never a hundred percent. But by and large that's what it was. And it was just weird because there were a lot of wealthy and, and well to do black people just living their lives and doing whatever it is that they felt like in Atlanta but it was just a different world. Don't mind the college pun, the black college pun <laughs> for anyone who's who's listening. <laughs> it was just different. And it was just very disconcerting. And on top of the fact that I always had this idea of what college a college campus was supposed to look like. Mm. And so I go to Morehouse and the neighborhood that it was in was just like the neighborhood that I left, which it's like if I'm sure you know anyone who saw Boys in the Hood the character, he goes to Morehouse. I'm sure he, when he got there, he looked around and was like, damn, this looks just like South Central Los Angeles, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't the picturesque college campus that you imagined it would be. I mean, there is a quad that does look nice. It has grass. It has old historic looking buildings. Yeah, that's great. But the main part of the campus looks like a parking lot. There were a lot of projects surrounding the school that, when I went. So- I just had a bad taste from the first day. And then as I explored the city and it was just so foreign and alien to what it was that I knew. And then you have the Southern hospitality, which is really nosiness and busy Yeah, I just was not having a good time at all. Hmm, I wanna just dig into that a little bit. Yeah.
0: One, I share your distaste for humidity. So uh, <laughs> I have curly hair, it just does awful yeah. things. You're just sweating all the time. I don't understand why anyone stays.
1: Well, it's, but... <laughs> it's winter here now, so I'm actually I would love some of that right now. To be mm. honest with you, I'm looking at ice out here.
0: Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. no, it's uh 63 here in Los yeah. Angeles. So, yeah. um, humble brag, but yeah. I want to dig into that a little bit because yeah. I recently, and this is slightly off topic, but you said something that kind of stuck out to me. There was a recent article by Charles Blow that talked about his desire for black Americans from all over the country to move to the South to kind of create a voting block that can vote in policies that would benefit African Americans, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that idea on its face, but I think the question that it then puts in my mind, when you talk about the kind of stark differences and the kind of culture shock that you experienced when you moved from Oakland to the Morehouse campus and general Atlanta, I'm trying to figure out how The Charles Blow vision of the move compares to your movement from Oakland, where you were living in a predominantly black part of Oakland and were going to a school that was majority black and had majority black friends. And then you go to Atlanta and Morehouse, which is obviously an HBCU in a, I think, a majority black city. And yet you experienced a culture shock, which again seems like a natural thing because you're going to an entirely different culture. But I'm trying to figure out how we reconcile these larger narratives of, oh, well, if we just move here, we'll all be black people and that'll be fine. When in fact, it makes more sense to me what you're describing, because I've experienced similar things when I move or visit other parts of the country, Mm -hmm. when I see other white people. When I spent some time in Virginia on a film shoot, I felt like an alien. I didn't understand the slang. Mm -hmm. I barely understood some of the accents. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I didn't feel like they were my kin, so to speak. So I I don't really have a larger question here, but I kind of just wanted to get your thoughts on this kind of larger national dialogue that's happening and compare it to your personal experience going through that culture shock.
1: Right. So we'll step back a little bit. I think Oakland might be one of the most heterogeneous cities in the country. There actually is no majority. There is almost an even quarterly split between, let's say, the four ethnic groups, if you will, You know, white people, black people, Asians, and Hispanics, big blocks. Obviously, you can get down to specific cultures and ethnicities within them, but that's kind of what it is. And because of Otis's quote unquote benevolence, I went to Skyline High School in the hills and the school mirrored... The city of Oakland. Everyone was more or less equally represented. So even though my friends were pretty much all black, yeah, they were all black, I was very cool and friendly with the white kids and the Asian kids and Hispanic kids that I went to school with. Everything was great. The neighborhood that I grew up in was actually predominantly Hispanic in the 20s. When I say the 20s, that's the area of town. I lived on 26th Avenue in Oakland. Uh, um, so you're, you're not 120 years old.: well, no, so you didn't no, grow yeah. up
0: in the 1920s.: no,
1: Yeah, I lived in the '20s in, in Oakland, so very Hispanic, I think even more so now, but both of my neighbors were Chinese immigrants, like both of them. So I was just always very used to a kaleidoscope of people, the cultures, the sounds, the food, the music, whatever. So to go to Atlanta which was at the time pretty much just black and white, but then also Southern culture, which obviously I'm familiar with because my grandparents are from the South. Black people just generally have a very strong connection through the South because one form or another, our families have spent time there or still have a lot of family there. That's a historical Um, understatement. Yes. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Just going back there, it was alien because it was the South. And I'm from 3,000 miles away, just a completely different culture. And so even though I went to a city where, let's say, my ethnicity was even more represented, that wasn't my culture. It wasn't my day-to-day culture. There was a, a very meta culture. We were all Black in America, but the day-to-day comings and goings, what I like to do, which is culture is just a fancy word of this is the stuff that people do. There was just two different cultures. I would say it's akin to Spanish culture and the Spanish derived cultures in South America or American culture and British culture. They're similar, but they're vastly different. And so when someone like Charles Blow says, "Hey, why don't we all get black people to move down to this one area or over here so that we can all do this thing together?" I have several several issues with that. One, who's picking this place? <laughs> like, I don't really like hot hot weather and sweaty weather. I lived in the south the vast majority of my adult life and the humidity and the heat after a while I I just can't stand it. I like California weather. If I want to be plain, it's perfect. I like that. I, as we've stated previously in this podcast, I don't necessarily get along well with people. <laughs> to a large extent, there are large parts of my personality that actively dislikes other people. So this idea that we are all going to get together to do this thing, I start breaking out in hives because <laughs> anything that's we, it's like, I don't know. You know, you might want to count me out. I like being alone. I like being able to move as an individual. I understand what he is saying that, from an academic standpoint or a theoretical standpoint, there is a lot of overlap in terms of perspective and desires within the Black community. And if we all were to move to an area, we could hash out some of the finer nuances and propose and enact policies. That align more closely to the needs of the black community and at a meta level individually, nah, I'm not really trying to devote my life to other people's causes because I only have one. My father was a bit of an activist or fancied himself as that, and yeah, I mean, he was doing that in his music, and on the other side of it, it's like, hey, man, you know, what about the time with your family so From a personal level, I can't see spending time on other people's causes when I have the cause of my own family to attend to. So I get what Charles Blow and other people say, and I'm sympathetic to the the motivations behind the idea, but I don't necessarily think it's a good idea, a practical idea. And then not all black people are, are your friends. So there's that too. So this idea that we all going to come together to do this thing, it's like, nah, man, that's not what's happening in at this point in history.
0: Yeah, I totally get that. There was a lot of talk like this when I used to run in activist circles, and I've talked about this on the podcast a bit, from like 2013 to 2018 because of a woman I was dating and very much in love with, and very much like you, I could understand statements like the ones that... Charles Blow is making and the ideas. I totally get it, right? Like, I've done the reading, so to speak. I understand the historical injustices and the common bonds that bring people together under a common cause to fight for justice and for causes that they believe in. Totally get it. And I understand that there are times and places in which people who have shared a similar history of oppression come together for a group action that ultimately benefits all of them. Like, totally get it. But Where some of that language started to sort of blur for me as I was going through this relationship and kind of mingling in these circles is if you're not careful, that language goes from the sort of academic idea of let's get all these folks together who share an immutable characteristic in order to fight against a system that judges them based on this immutable characteristic, which we can all agree is wrong and we should fight against that thing. Mm -hmm. It then starts to potentially blur it into well, all the people with this immutable characteristic might have other things in common, really, if we get them all together. And that's where I was like, okay, well, hold on one second. And that's why some of the stuff around the Charles Blow conversation makes me a little uneasy because, like most academic or economic broad discussions, it kind of can obliterate the fact that what you're ultimately doing whenever you do any sort of group action, whether it's unionizing, getting folks from minority backgrounds or religious backgrounds or name the background, and you bring them together to do something collective, you are ultimately bringing together individuals who are all different. And when you grow up 3,000 miles away from someone else, sure, you are both racialized as black, Mm -hmm. but you're you have different slang. I mean, yeah. take Michael B. Jordan, for instance, right? He had to study entirely different dialects and entirely different cultural backgrounds to be in the movie Creed and to be in the movie Black Panther because there is an entirely different cultural background between being a dude who grew up in Oakland as a black man and a dude who grew up in Philadelphia as a black man. Yes. And they're both black, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's Michael B. Jordan in both roles. Yes. But you can't just walk into it and be like, well, I've done my homework, guys. There's an entirely different cultural foundation there. And the thing that worries me, and this is kind of the broader sort of in the background, you and I discussed this a bit in our texting up until this point, Mm -hmm. the kind of broader thing that I sort of wanted to use this conversation to sort of get at, which is how do you preserve the individual? Like, how do you preserve rock as rock, right? While also recognizing that there are commonalities and cultural touchstones that do bind people together because of shared experiences they've had throughout time. Does that make sense? Yes. No, it makes makes
1: perfect sense. It's the question of my life. So, I think there's a misdiagnosis of the problem. I was speaking about this with I think either John Wood or maybe it was Rod. We're no longer under a specific identifiable mechanism of oppression. Up until 1964, 68, whatever, it was very, very, very easy to identify where the pain points are because they were all written down, right? Um, You know, it's like Jim Crow was a thing, redlining was a thing. These were very overt and specific policies. And so, with this very overt and specific threat, that is. Environment that needs sort of singular organizations or very prominent leadership to tackle these very specific problems. And so that's where you get these huge movements. You know, you had your your MLK and you had your Malcolm X and Megar Evers and all these different people, Marcus Garvey, the years before, Julio Cesar Chavez, all of these different people, right, who were trying to tackle very specific issues. But now this environment that we currently find ourselves in, the issues aren't so overt that way. We all understand that all of our bureaucracies and systems are legacy and that there are threads through them that aren't conditioned or designed for everyone. That's what people call systemic racism or systemic sexism or all of these isms, right? It's just, again, People doing the same old stuff that they had been doing until they figure out enough people don't want them to do that anymore. and then then you change. All of that is to say, the issues today is sort of they are individual issues. So while black people were redlined into poverty in a lot of ways, we weren't given favorable loans and different things, The solution still is a very individual one in the sense that, It is up to every man, woman, and child to elevate themselves economically, financially, culturally, within the family. As we talked about those threads of trauma that chases through history, there are collective things that we can do. A lot of that is just very individualistic. You have to build skill within yourself we need accountants we need lawyers we need doctors we need it professionals we need plumbers we need electricians we need all of these different things if we are going to build this community that we say that we want to build people look at the jewish community or the asian community or even with hispanic community there are things that we can take from them as an example but our histories are just different our histories are different we are Long time citizens of this country were woven into the fabric of this country in ways that other groups aren't. I mean, black people kind of don't exist outside of the United States. Now, that's a very controversial statement, right? There are black people, quote unquote, everywhere, but the heritage of, as some would say, being descendant of slavery in this land, that is a very distinct history. And where we are today is we just don't have those overt laws in the books like Jim Crow and all of these different things. And so I think we haven't shifted the narrative in terms of what we need to do in order to elevate our community. And when I say we haven't shifted the narrative, I want to say it's people like Charles Blow. I want to say it's people who have access to the New York Times and various media and corporate apparatus. It's not what's going on. On the ground, you can talk to all manner of people and you see what's going on with your family. And it gets back to what we were talking about earlier is that there's just a long thread of trauma that Black people, very specifically, I just want to focus on Black people that we've been dealing with. And we know that we can't look for outside help because it's always going to be late. Even if that outside help is getting an organization of Black people together, it's kind of a backhand joke slash. This amongst Black people that we can't work together. So instead of waiting for this apparatus to be built around us before we can then perhaps elevate ourselves, everyone that I know is doing it on their own. They've broke the chains of addiction within their family. They have moved their education further along. If their parents got bachelor's degrees, they, got, they have master's and, and doctorates. They've gone to Ivy Leagues. They've built businesses. They've built families If their parents got divorced, they're together with a nuclear family with multiple kids. If they weren't able to avoid divorce, they're still very involved with their children. We're not losing people to the latest wave of drugs or the latest wave of incarceration. Now, I know that I'm speaking from a very specific segment of the Black community because As people say, it's not a monolith. There are still people living in 2021, the same as I was living back in 1982 in the middle of, well, I guess crack came a little bit later, but there are still people living in what they would consider hell. So I don't want to like cast aside their experience, but there is still that thing of where the things that we need to do as a community, it is very individual based in that we have to deal with our own internal trauma within ourselves as individuals before we can proactively and productively join with other people in order to build something for our community. But what's gonna happen as we build all the blocks to then build these organizations for ourselves, well, guess what? We've already skipped to the end and we've established the careers and the businesses and all the things that we say that we wanna create, right? It's not this thing that we get to and that, okay, all of this stuff will be built for us somehow some way, and then we can ascend to our rightful place. No, our rightful place is through the process of ascension. This whole idea of we all have to move to this one place before we can then start. It's like, nah, man you're you're already several steps behind if that makes any sense at all,
0: yeah, it does. it makes a lot of sense. You alone just kind of encapsulated a conversation that I heard between Camille Foster and Van Lathan. I think I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He once worked at TMZ. Yes. He's a, a journalist on in his own right, I believe. Yeah, and yeah. they had a, a back and forth where they kind of spoke about this exact topic with Camille kind of playing one half of what you just said and Van playing the other half of what you just said. For me, listening, obviously, as a white dude, um, sure. yeah, I was listening from an outsider's perspective, but I found myself agreeing with both men pretty much the entire time in that they were both making completely legitimate points, which I think speaks to the tension that exists when talking about a community as both a collective and as a collection of individuals, right? And that tension, as you mentioned, I think it's much more prevalent now. And will become ever more prevalent as we move further and further away from the 1960s as black Americans kind of splinter off into different areas of the United States. They pursue different career objectives. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder... And this is largely based on a lot of conversations I've had, not just with close friends of mine, both who are American descendants of slaves and also black immigrants, which again speaks to your whole point of it's difficult when the same word can mean both a culture and a global race, right? Because capital B black, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, is a very specific, and I talked about this with Razib Khan in an earlier episode, like, there is no one who has been in America as the country, aside from the native Americans longer than either the original white settlers pre 1790 and the black slaves they brought over around the same time. Like those two are the foundational groups that have been here the longest and both have formed in their own ways, their own cultures, right? Which was then modified by waves of immigration that came later, both pre 1965 and post. Mm -hmm. But so I wonder, And my larger question here, and and we can talk about this now, we can table it and talk about it more after Tulsa, but it's a tension that, at least to me as as an outsider, I can recognize that it seems to be building to a head, which is, what is, quote unquote, black culture? Yeah. How do we preserve it, Mm -hmm. right? Should we? What does it mean as we become more and more diverse across the strata of the economy and the society? Yes. And- is it something worth preserving and what does that preservation entail? Yes. And do we just embrace the fact that it will dissipate and change as all cultures do? I hope I'm being articulate, but it's yes, something that when I try and talk with folks online or friends, I find myself kind of tripping over my own words because I feel like I'm trying to wrestle sand or try to hold like a piece of jelly in my hand because yes. it feels so slippery, which I think mm-hmm. conversations around culture, no matter who you're talking about often do.
1: Yes. Yeah it's a very very complex question and i wrestle with it because even though i am extremely individualistic maybe that's my americanness i have an affinity for black people black culture black heritage because this is the heritage that i grew up with this is the heritage that was gifted to me and i do feel that it's a gift all the slavery stuff All the Jim Crow stuff, the good and the bad and the ugly, I think it was all a gift. And the way that I can best pay that gift is to claim what I want from this country. So I actually recently, and I mean, I would say within the past year, I've learned of my oldest ancestor that I guess we can track. My mother's mother, so my maternal grandmother, I believe it was her. Her grandmother, or maybe it was her great-grandmother, she was brought here in, I want to say like 1805 as a teenager, 13, 14 years old, brought here as a slave. And she died, I want to say sometime in the 19-teens, 1920s. She was about 120 years old when she died. And that's how we, we know about her because she was profiled in the town where she lived there in Texas. And so they knew her whole history. Were you able to find that profile? Were you able to read her own work? I can't even
0: imagine the things that woman lived through.
1: No. So it was a profile on her. My mother sent it to me. I can't remember where where exactly it is. But yeah, I mean, she was known, right? Obviously, she lived 120 years. And so, you know, she knew several generations. I believe my grandmother may have met her actually. But as you were saying, here from like the very beginning. So I think that. Black people in America, the thing that we always wanted and the thing that people say is we want to be treated like everyone else. We want a fair shot at doing whatever. That's the end result, right? So I'm like, let's just skip to the end. I'm not interested in people liking me or caring about me and everything like that. I need people to stay out of my way. I'm going to go about pursuing all the things that it is that I want to do. That is my what I believe my contribution to Black culture is. Another person saying, yeah, black culture means you get to define who it is that you want to be. It's hip hop, right? Hip hop is black culture. If there ever was an element of of black culture heritage that can perfectly sums it up, it's hip hop, right? We take all this stuff around us and we create something brand new out of it. And we're going to do that over and over and over and over and over again. And I love that about black people. And I love that about my heritage. So I want to always champion the fact that our end game is every single one of us doing whatever it is that we want and pursuing our dreams and our aspirations. And I believe now is a great time. We don't have to move down to the South in order to do this thing. Wherever you are, you can take over your block, as they say in hip hop. The way to become a hip hop star is actually kind of easy. It's hard, but it's very methodical, right? Be the hottest artist on your block. Start there. From there, you become the hottest artist on your side of town. Then it's the whole town. Now it's your region. Now it's your state. And it just grows and grows and builds from there. And you can do that from Oakland. You can do that from St. Louis. You can do that from LA. You can do that from New York. You can do that in Atlanta. And you can build these mountains and these empires all over here and you grow and you grow and you grow until you look around and all your people are sitting high on hilltops and mountains and you've built an empire, you've built a successful environment. When we look at these other groups of people that are admired for their their community, right? They don't just have organizations that are doing things For the community, you have people doing for these organizations. They're putting into the pot. They are coming to the table with something, right? You can't just say, I have this organization to take care of all the issues of Black people because where are they going to get the resources from? Where are they going to get the expertise? Where are they going to get the skill, right? You have to show up with something. You have to make sure that your family is taken care of and established before you can go out and save someone else's family. So when people start talking about, we Black people, we have to do this, we have to do that. I'm like, what are you doing for your family? Is your family good? Are they straight? Have you set up savings accounts for your children? How's your life insurance situation? What is the general generational wealth are you handing to your children in terms of their emotional stability, their physical stability, their financial stability? You have to work on all of these things first before you can go out talking about All the stuff that you want to do for this nebulous idea of, quote unquote, the black community, because as I was saying before, not everyone black is on your side. Not everyone black is trying to reach the same places as you're trying to reach. So this idea that we all aren't going to be okay until we all are okay, it's like, man, dude, that's nonsense. It's never going to happen. We need to be more practical and realistic. and take a practical realistic and militant attitude into everything that we're doing whether it's your education whether it's your career whether it's your relationships i'm tired of hearing all these stats about what black people can and can't do that's the past just go do it and if you don't know how go ask someone there's no excuse to be making these same excuses anymore right we have supercomputers in our hands all the information in mankind is literally at your fingertips so i'm in a position throughout my career to influence other people's careers. People applied to my company for internships. So I can't help someone black if they aren't meeting me at this table with skills that I can say, hey, yeah, how about this guy? How about this woman? And it's not that I'm exclusively looking for just black young men and young women to help. I'm open to everyone. And the things that I talk about is just not exclusive to the black community. And I know you hear me talk about this very often on Twitter. And that is sort of the, one of the points in my book is that even though I come from this black heritage, it gives me certain values and perspectives. The things that I'm saying are really for everyone, because I look at, at the working class white community and they're going through a lot of the same issues that I saw people going through in the black communities that I grew up and people that I've seen, you know, I've been around. Their communities are being ravaged by drugs and families are falling apart and difficulties to find jobs. We just had this election and everyone is looking for Donald Trump to save them or or Joe Biden to save them. And it's like, man, (laughs) there's there's a whole lot of stuff that you could and should be doing before any of these politicians are going to come help you. Well, one of my homies is fond of saying the best way to get on your feet is to get off your ass.
0: Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah, <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just fine. I think it'll help act as a kind of transition to talk about Tulsa. And I'll put it this way, which is I'm sure there are people who are going to be listening to this podcast who are black, who may disagree with what you just said,
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm,
0: which yeah. is the point. There are going to be people in any aspect of life, no matter what a person's background is who either agree or disagree with what your prescriptions for a quote unquote group might be in the Mm -hmm. same way that you're going to disagree with people, your fellow Americans who are black about solutions, et cetera. I think somewhere in the book, and you've kind of echoed it here, you had mentioned how you had noticed that you saw people going into, I think in San Francisco state specifically, you saw people going into like studies programs and uh, wanting to learn more about African-American culture and that sort Humanities of Humanities. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you commented, and I think you echoed it here, wanting more electricians and doctors and plumbers and lawyers, et cetera. And that is the tension, right, between the, the idea of the collective and the idea of the individual, because I'm sure folks, and maybe I'm sure you've had maybe even people say this to you in real life, hey, Rock cool suggestion, man, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And you're going to do what you're going to do. And why I wanted to use this to transition into the Tulsa bit is that when I was a young kid growing up in a predominantly white East Bay suburb of Northern California, and my only connection with Black people were like the 10 that went to my high school and the shows that I watched. When I was growing up in the 90s, my only guiding star as to what quote-unquote black people were thinking were the things that I heard celebrities say, or the, the scripts from the TV shows that I watched, like A Different World, or Family Matters, or Hanging with Mr. Cooper. I mean, any one of the right. number of shows that I grew up with as a child. Yeah. And then you make contact with the real world, kind of like you did in your experience with making close white friends in Tulsa and I'm going to pull from first an essay you wrote in medium which the title I'm not going to say (laughs) you can't
1: say it man (laughs) yeah I cannot
0: I cannot and shall not say it but I will link it in the show notes censored yes but um in it you talk about how you moved to Tulsa and how a lot of your friends who you grew up with in Oakland were wary as were you of the experiences that you were going to have once you moved to a predominantly white city and you say quote white people lived there that's all i knew of tulsa as i prepared to move my family there a wife infant daughter and california were no longer an affordable combination i noticed the worried looks on my friends faces as i explained my plans to make my life better the thought of all these white people made them nervous there was simply no telling how they would accept me california had the most progressive and liberal white people the world had ever known but it didn't exactly feel friendly when you were around them the idea of moving to a place with conservative white people. And mm-hmm. I'm saying this because you have it in italics yeah. in the essay. Yes, <laughs> so if anyone's yes. wondering why I'm making this, uh, yes. this voice.
1: And I'll explain that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Might as well have been signing up for war. White mm-hmm. people were largely a mystery to us aside from the fact that they let their dogs lick their face. Which, by the way, that is a weird thing. I've never seen that. But anyway, that's not going to there. <laughs> never. I would never. Which oh, God, my dog's, my dog's tongue is on his butt. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah. all the ways they were different from us didn't matter. They just were. I didn't feel negatively about them, but they didn't factor into my thoughts. There was money and financial security in Oklahoma, and I was going to grab some for my family. And then in your book, you talk about how you just needed a breather after you and your wife and your daughter moved to Tulsa, and you were started just driving around to sort of get a lay of the land. And you end up driving to and stopping at a bar. And you kind of relay this quote, after driving for a while, I stopped in a local bar. I wasn't looking for much. Perhaps I could listen to some music before heading home. Walking into that bar, I was again reminded of my uniqueness relative to the patrons. It wasn't that I'd never been the only black person in a bar. It was just that those places were usually more upscale and in cities known for being more diverse. I may have been in the bar for five minutes when a gentleman sitting further down the bar called out to me. He greeted me, asked my name, and then offered his. He asked what had brought me to town, making it clear that everything about me screamed that I wasn't a local. My brief response concerning work was greeted with congratulations and the offer of a beer. Because I wasn't planning on staying long, I politely declined, but he made a point that it wasn't right to sit in a bar and not have a drink. He then ordered me a Bud Light, on his tab end quote. And I'll stop just reading your own words back to you. But then you go on to talk about the first interaction you had with a white family and the friend you made, who was the tallest man you'd ever met. And perhaps we can use that as a jumping off point.
1: Yeah. So I think I need to give an explanation of that essay. And the essay, what I was doing, I forgot exactly, I think it was Basically, it was a conversation about the N-word, and I will respect your podcast and not say it. Because I actually don't say it. I don't really say it. I don't say the word anymore. But what I was doing was, both my parents are musicians. I grew up in music. I was actually going to try to write a song today. And so I have this extremely creative side, particularly when it comes to music and song writing and whatever. So when I wrote that essay, I wrote it as if I were writing a song. The entire essay is a piece of art. And so I use very inflammatory language in that art to make the readers uncomfortable so that they understand the weight of words and the stereotypes that we place on words. So throughout the essay, white is in italics because I wanted to signify the black projection of what whiteness was. What white people were like: letting dogs lick you in the face, putting raisins in potato salad, which no one ever does, but it's just no, some do. Some, some do, some do. Okay, and, and, we, but, and we and we and we avoid them. We avoid, yeah, them. yeah. But you know, <laughs> it's that stuff. And so I wanted to juxtapose white, quote unquote, as sort of a pejorative with the N word as a pejorative, but then also as a term of endearment amongst individual groups of black people. And I say it very specifically that way because contrary to popular belief, I can't just go up to a group of random black people and start dropping that word. It's not like that at all. I will find myself in trouble the way you would find yourself in trouble. A, because not every black person is comfortable with that word. Some do find it offensive in all forms and are willing to fight you over it. And two, even if you know that these guys, let's say they love hip hop and they're all as black as black can be, right? I can't just go and walk up on these people and just start dropping them bombs because I'm not their friend. I don't know them. And it's an insult. I want to just really juxtapose those two words because the whole point further on in that essay, I talk about how my newfound white friends never use that word right they found it offensive it was as you were you know saying it's a word that you just will never use out of respect for what it means and how it's been used and so as i'm with my new white friends and i'm observing the respect that they have for that word and for black people and how they don't ever they just don't use that word as a manifestation of their overall respect, I had to look within myself to say, man, these white people, quote unquote, italics, whatever, they are showing more consideration for black people and what that word means than I am. Because I'm singing all the words to all the Dr. Dre, all the too short, all the whatever. I'm frequently calling my friends this word. And I had to reflect Within myself, is the use of this word? Does this accurately reflect the love and admiration that I have for my people? And I had to say, no, it doesn't. And so the culmination of that essay is me no longer using that word and then also no longer using the pejorative of white people because people are people and. There's value in understanding people individually. There's a richness to to everyone's individual story, whether it's these overarching ethnic groups, and there's a richness to that history and that legacy, or then individually. And so, as you were saying, friends help you find good friends, help you find the better parts of yourselves. I found a better part of myself by just hanging around with more white people. I found more respect for black people by hanging around other people who are white. And so that was the whole point of that essay. My friend, who recently just had a heart attack, and so I want to kill him, as you mentioned in the book, he's a musician. He's a bass player, right? This is Dave we're talking about? Dave, man, my man, Dave. I mean, who doesn't like a bass player, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Always the coolest dude around. And so I was able to hang out with Dave and, and his wife and his daughter and my daughter. They grew up for the first 10 years of, of their lives, best friends my family like i said he just had a heart attack you know last week and so i'm feeling scared for him because this is one of my best friends but dave and his family this was the first white family that i spent real personal time with you know birthday parties and and weddings and just random tuesdays and i'm too drunk to really drive home so i'm just going to crash on dave's couch Having dinner, just impromptu dropping by and, oh, they have to run errands. And so I'm going to watch the girls while they go out on errands or after I got divorced. The fact that, you know, not just Dave, but my other boys in Tulsa, they help not just me, but my family, myself, my daughter, my ex-wife, we were all still friends. We were all still family. And so I saw my ex-wife all the time. Her and Dave's wife, they were really good friends and our kids were great together. And they made it very clear. There were no sides that were ever going to be taken. We were all family. My ex-wife and I, we were going to have to figure out <laughs> how we felt about it because no one was getting fired. No one was getting ostracized. And as you can imagine being divorced in a town where you don't have people you grew up with or a real family, how that could be scary and very anxiety inducing but I was with people who loved me and when I was having financial difficulties because you know divorces are expensive my other boy stepped up and helped me out a little bit here and just everyone did a little bit to help my family make it over that hump and it's like how can you not love people who love you just for being you you know what i mean and so living with these people and supping with these people and Intertwining lives with these people, all of these misconceptions and these things that we have about quote unquote white people or black people or Hispanic, Asian people, it all fades away when you're just dealing with this person on the other side of the room who is personally invested in your well being, personally invested in making sure that today is a little bit better than it would have been without them those are the people who love you. Those are your family. And that doesn't come in a specific hue or with a specific heritage. As I was saying, my white friends and their heritage and all the things that they grew up with, they helped me clean up my language as it pertains to Black people to show a little bit more overt respect to Black people. Even though my friends, I've had my friends for 30 years and everything, I found within myself a deeper well of integrity as it relates to how I talk to my friends. So yeah, I love my folks back there and oh my boy Dave feels better. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm sorry about, you said he had a heart attack? Yeah, he had a series of heart attacks. Small ones, I mean, yeah. you can have a heart attack and just actually just keep going. You feel a little tired. So he's on the mend right now. He needs to stop smoking those damn camels. <laughs> that's what yeah, that. that's probably
0: <laughs> step one there. I hope he feels better. Yeah, um, yeah. So I acknowledge your story i appreciate you sharing it with me but i think my question is mm-hmm. speaking as a white my question is <laughs>
1: don't say it <laughs> no i'm kidding crazy. i'm kidding
0: i'm kidding of course of course
1: no. i know what you're saying i'm but being ironic
0: crazy. i'm being ironic. i know i know um but the <laughs> but uh, speaking as someone
1: yes.
0: <laughs> in regards to the word right because it's been in the news all over the place and recent events etc etc cetera. Et cetera and it's not that i want to push back on your own lived experience because you lived it you went through it i totally understand as best i can and respect yes. that so that yep. i want to put that out there
1: sure
0: but and again i wasn't there for these conversations but i can speak to my own relationship to that word which is you had said that the way that they talked about black people made you reconsider how you were talking about them yourself and i think from my perspective the white people I know and, and myself included, yes, obviously we don't use that word out of respect. I mean, anyone who is a upstanding person and cares about their fellow human beings won't use that word out of respect. But there's also, I feel like, an understanding of just the pure power imbalance rooted in who's using that word and for what purpose mm-hmm. and how people who looked like me in the past you know who i didn't know and were alive well before i was born but people who looked like me used that word in very specific contexts i would only offer my perspective in that yes of course people don't use slurs to refer to people they care about that goes without saying i mean at least as far as as my relation to slurs right but i think there also is that understanding amongst upstanding white people you could say that you just, you never use it because of the historical connotations of who was using it against who. Yeah. And so I guess just to offer you an opportunity, if you want, mm-hmm. to further clarify what you were saying, I think that there might be some who, when they hear like the phrase, like, white people taught me how to love black people more, I'm paraphrasing there.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: I just want to give you an opportunity to elaborate on, if you want, you don't have to, this isn't a, this isn't a cross examination. I I just wanted to offer you an opportunity to elaborate on that if you wanted to. Yeah, sure. I just want to give you a fair shake.
1: No, no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's not that I learned how to love black people more by, (laughs) by through white people, right? That's not literal that way. Um, I figured. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was probably using a, a rhetorical device there. What I mean to say is I was able to step outside of myself and see the world from someone else's perspective. That's what I meant by that. Um, That makes sense. This is why I like to surround myself with different types of people so I I can steal their perspective, right? I want to know what the world is like for them as best as I possibly can. I've always had a lot of female friends, very specifically for this reason. I will never know what the female perspective is, despite whatever's going on with the conversation about trans, I don't really get into it. I know that I will never understand what it is to be born a woman, live a life as a woman, all that. So I keep women around me to talk to, to learn from. When I moved to Oklahoma and I had a chance to make very close, authentic, personal friends with white people or with people who happen to be white, I was able to see the world from their perspective. I was able to understand how they grew up, things that they were doing as they were growing up, the environment, the world, why everyone in Oklahoma is conservative, even if they're liberal, just really seeing the world from their perspective. And so Here's this word that I would just use freely all day, every day. And now I can't use this fixture in my vocabulary. I can't use it anymore because I'm very consciously not with quote unquote my people. And so I can't just use that word. Um, Now, mind you, I'm going to make it like weird for people. I wasn't the only black person in my group of friends. We had other black people. One of my close, close homeboys. This is in Tulsa? This is in Tulsa. I knew a bunch of musicians and and, and stuff. So my close homeboys, black dude, he said it all the time, right? No one thought anything of it. This was just how he spoke. Me, I'm a little bit more self-conscious. I was just very conscious of that word because... I have to be conscious of it because I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm hanging out with my friends and then I'm going to work in corporate America, or I'm literally on the phone with my friends and I'm hanging up and then I have to go talk to my manager. right So I'm very, very aware of my placement of words all the time. And then also I have a thing with words just as a side, that's a whole other story. So I'm very conscious of what it is that I'm saying and how I'm saying it furthering my communication with people. And so I'm looking at the world through the perspective of non-Black people. Now that I'm in their environment, I have time and space to really see that word and the use of that word from the outsider perspective. And I was just like, you know what? It's just not consistent with my integrity and the way that I feel about my friends, my people. Just for instance, I don't insult my friends, period. I don't call them idiots and dummies and morons and all that sort of hazing stuff that goes back and forth between some people. I don't do that. right? I don't do it. So it's not just the N-word. I don't speak about my friends or talk to my friends in negative or in put downs or any of that stuff because I always want my friends to feel uplifted. I want every word from me that they remember to be one of motivation, of love, of respect, of upliftment. So I can't use that word to my friends and to my people. I can't call them idiots. I can't call them dummies. I can't call them whatevers. It's a general elevation of respect to match my self-imposed integrity, if you will.
0: Yeah. I'm picking up what you're putting down that last bit, I can definitely relate to it in that there in high school, there were some friends in my friend group that would use like insults, like the ones you were describing, like not exactly like idiot or dummy, but like just little jabs here and there that they thought were being taken by everyone receiving them, like in the spirit they intended them. But over time, that stuff can kind of build up. And I remember I, I actually had to confront a friend of mine who had been doing it for, like, years. And I wanted to be like, oh, I'm cool with it. Yeah, like, that's totally fine. And he's doing it to everybody. Yeah. So, like, I don't want to be the guy who pulls him aside and asks him to stop because I don't want to be the weak one, yeah. you yeah. know. But after a while, it was really getting to me because he was saying everything in jest, and but he was still making fun and in specific ways that were specific to the individuals he was talking to. Yeah. And I remember when I had to confront him about it, you know, I was just like, hey, it hurts when you say these things. And he was like, oh, but you know, you know, we're friends, right? And I was like, yeah, I, I know. So can you stop? Right. And he got defensive at first, but we eventually talked it out and and he stopped. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's the trick with language in general, right? Like, I'll never understand what that word means to anyone outside of myself. Yeah. But I do understand how oftentimes the way that a person intends for a word to be received and the way that that word is received by the person receiving it can be two very, very different things. And unless you check in with that person and ask them, when I'm saying this to you, how are you receiving it? That's a conversation that I think needs to be had when you care about the people you're saying it to. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think one of the things that we do is oftentimes we have a higher level of consideration and respect for complete strangers. And the people we love the most are the ones who we attack and we beat up and do all this other crazy crap with. And it's like, man, dude, these are the people you should be showing the most love, the most affirmation to. So I don't want to preach to anyone, right? When people say it, I still have friends who say it. I'm not the grammar police. I'm not shaking my finger and telling them what to say or what what not to say. I'm out here trying to demonstrate the best that I can, how I think people ought to be. And I show strangers an immense amount of just default respect, consideration, whatever. And I don't lessen that when I'm with my friends, it's even more so with my friends. You're going to get more love. You're going to get more compassion. You're going to just get more. So yeah, it's a weird thing. I'm weird like that. I'm very high on, this goes back to Otis, right? I'm very, very high on respect. I don't like people touching me without invitation, of course. I don't like people talking to me any old kind of way, right? we're going to have a conversation about it and we can do whatever else that you want to do as a result of that too. But I'm going to set a certain standard. I'm going to make it very, very easy for you to meet that standard and very, very difficult for you if you don't. And so I demonstrate that by just leading off with an overabundance of respect and consideration.
0: Yeah. And that totally makes sense. And I'm glad that you shared that and elaborated on that in this conversation because although it wasn't the initial thing that clicked with me about that essay, mm-hmm. uh, I'm glad that you spoke on yeah. it because the thing that I really like honed in on was not so much that word, but more how you came to understand the quote-unquote other right when you came across them <laughs> in Tulsa and then saw them as complex and fully three-dimensional human beings, and that reality started clashing against what you had thought they were, right? Yeah, there was another quote in the novel, quote, aside from episodes of Roseanne and All in the Family, white people were portrayed to be well-off. Not everyone was rich, but they didn't seem to have to deal with the same issues I did. They were just different people living different lives in a country that seemed different from the one I lived in. As much as I thought I knew about white people from media and mainstream culture, I realized that I didn't know much at all. Dave and Cynthia were regular people with a regular family, living in a regular city. Making ends meet with enough for the occasional vacation or luxury item was a challenge we all struggled with. Their fears and concerns for their daughter Elizabeth were the same as my concerns for Yasmin. Aside from Stacy and I having better tans... (laughs) We were essentially the same family dealing with the same problems, end quote. And what really stuck out to me about that passage and the essay that I quoted earlier and was sort of the impetus for me wanting to present this as our topic of conversation is, yeah, I mean, the touchstones are not identical, but I grew up in a very white town and my Interactions with black people were mostly through media. I had a couple friends when I was young, like 12, 13, who would come and stay with their mom on weekends. They grew up in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And so we would hang out and play basketball and stuff. But where were you guys? Walnut Creek? I, I, I spent a good chunk of my childhood in Pleasanton. Pleasanton. Okay. Mm-hmm. So about 30 minutes away from Oakland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, other than those two brothers, I didn't get a chance to interact with a lot of black people in a way that was just organic and really until I hit my twenties and I was 27. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was basically 24, 25 graduate school. Mm -hmm. And it was just interesting for me. The biggest feeling that I had was one of betrayal and the betrayal came from what I felt was a flattening of representation of who black Americans are, in that even in an attempt to make television and movies more diverse, the way that the media was talking about black people in the 90s and 2000s, and I even see this echoed today, it's like we can't get away from it, was this separate, distinct other, right? So like, even when I was watching shows, they were black shows. Even when I was watching Family Matters, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, even though all of the storylines aside from like some slang or like a couple specific cultural touchstones or like the occasional will has to confront a racist at high school episodes. Yeah. 95% of the plot lines, you could have swapped in any other race of a family and nothing would have changed. And yet as a child, I was absorbing them as I was being told by society to, which is these are quote unquote black shows. Mm -hmm. And so that language, just like, even if you're, not wanting to think any certain way about any other person, one, if you're isolated from another group, and two, the entire way that the media and society at large speaks on them is in this way that makes them feel like they're other in some way. Yes, It eventually builds up in your mind like a moss to the point where when you finally do interact with someone, (laughs) you all of a sudden come to this idiotic almost revelation, which is, wait, 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 wait. This person is almost exactly like me. Yeah. What on earth was I absorbing? Why was I thinking these things? Yeah. And so that was like the big touchstone that I kind of grasped onto with your story. Because one, I really appreciated how kind of openly you discussed it and how vulnerable you were in discussing it and discussing your own ignorance around the topic before you became more acclimated to it, because I went through a similar thing, and I imagine there's some ways in which we share common views in terms of how even
1: these discussions are happening today. Yes. I'm very disappointed in the discussions today, largely for the sentiment that you highlighted, in that we act so familiar with each other, yet we have no idea who we actually are. And I'm saying that very, very generically as you were saying. We see black people on TV, or we see white people on TV, or Hispanics, or, or Asians, and we see it so often, and we see these depictions so often that we think that this is how those people are. And I say that with no disrespect or condescension just as a- Well, that's the message use.
0: society sends, yeah, those, yeah. those people. As a, yeah.
1: Exactly, as a plain use of grammar. But yep. yeah, it does become those people because it's, as you were saying, it's always framed that way. Here's the thing that's somewhat unique about me is I don't like or trust anyone, right? Anyone not me is a stranger. So the fact that you're black, white, or Asian, it doesn't really matter to me because you aren't me. I'm very, very detached from the rest of humanity in in a lot of ways. I grew up around black people. Obviously, these are my friends, these are my family, and so you know them intimately, of course. But when it came to other type of people, there was always just sort of this, even though there was some bit of othering, it wasn't necessarily like white people were othered specifically. No, they were just a specific type of other to me because everyone, not me, was another. And then you you factor in the fact that I went to a very mixed school, so I was able to interact with people on a day-to-day basis. I saw that white kids aren't smarter than anyone. Asian kids aren't smarter necessarily than anyone. They put more effort into it. I can say that. I knew a couple of, of Asian kids and it was like, man, you guys are really, really going hard in on this, aren't you? And it's like, yeah, that's just what they were doing based on them and, and certain things with their family and their parental expectations. But that same expectation was mirrored with my black friends and not just the immigrant ones, but the ones who are ADOS or however people want to say that, just regular plain old black people. Yeah, they had that high academic standards and work ethic too. When it actually came time to meet other types of people, even though there was sort of a bit of a othering, one, I didn't really trust the media and I knew what the media was saying about Black people wasn't necessarily true. So there was always that caveat for other people that what I was getting from the media wasn't exactly true. I knew enough or was familiar with enough white people to know specifically in certain ways Yeah, that they're three-dimensional people and not just these caricatures that you see on TV. So all of that sort of combined to make me very open to the idea of going to Oklahoma for work. Right? I wasn't necessarily concerned with the social aspect of it because I was going for the money. And anyone knows me that when it comes to money, yeah, that's the number one, two, and three priority. Everything else is yeah I can just deal with it. It made me very open to have this experience, just like all of these things are I articulated made me very open to traveling alone and meeting strangers out in the world because you know I had this history of viewing everyone as a stranger, and so I had to build some very you know specific tools within myself to break out of my own introvertedness and insecurities and all of that. so I do understand that the perspectives that I've come to, lives that I've lived, people that I've been around, I do know that it is somewhat unique. But in that uniqueness, whatever this, what I thought was a curse turned out to be somewhat as a gift. And I feel that it's my responsibility then to have these conversations with people, to get outside of how we talk about it in the zeitgeist of- Black people are X and white people are Y. And we can even expand that larger to things like the left and the right and all these different things. I pull back from that because I know too many people, right? I know too many individuals personally to put any weight into these overarching, slightly condescending and negative depictions of all of these various groups. I know the media is lying about black people, so I cannot trust what they're saying about anyone else.
0: Yeah. And that's something where, especially when I hear the messaging today, I'm so grateful that I'm not that kid in a predominantly white suburb in the 90s because I would have taken it all as truth. I would have heard the specific voices that were being elevated to say specific things about entire groups of 40 to 50 million people. Yeah, And I would have been like, well, I don't know any. So sure. Yeah. That sounds about right. I mean, I'm watching these shows that are categorized as black shows and I'm seeing these quote unquote black comedians and everything was being segregated even when TV was becoming more diverse. It was still Mm -hmm. segregated in how it was marketed and how it was set up and how it was written. And so if this same messaging that we're experiencing today had gone out over the airwaves to me as like a 13, 14 year old white kid, I would have just bought it. And the thing is, is that to echo what you just said, I'm so grateful to have a diverse group of friends now in Los Angeles who I know, a mixture of American descendants of slaves, immigrants of all races, colors, creeds, et cetera, that can provide me a gut check so that if any time someone comes around saying, this is how X thinks, this is what X wants, I can be like, you might, you might want that. You individual person saying it or the organization that you're representing, Mm -hmm. you might want it and more power to you if you do in the same way that we were talking about earlier. If people want to move to a place and vote for their interests, 100% support it. If people want to go to a certain college or pursue a certain interest, 100% support it. And that's where I think that these like unnecessary conflicts happen online where people can misconstrue the idea that I've come across this multiple times where I try to draw a distinction between saying, I believe that anyone of any background should be able to pursue whatever they want and identify with however they define their culture, however they want. I 110% endorse that. Where I begin to get perturbed is when people then try and speak on behalf of others and say, this is what we want and this is what they do. And that stuff really rubs me the wrong way, and it wouldn't have 25 years ago when I didn't know better, but now I do, and I dislike it.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I'm speaking as a 44-year-old man. A lot of the stories that we've talked about when I was in Tulsa happened in my very late 20s and into my mid-30s but when you go back before what the age of 27 i didn't have personal white friends i didn't have personal asian friends my neighbors they were cool but those are very limited relationships my social circles were black and it wasn't that i was necessarily more enlightened so much as that you know other people really just didn't come up white people were people that you dealt with at work or Asians, or you know, the Asian lady that was at work, or there was a sushi restaurant we would always go to, and we were great with them, or we'd go down to the truck and grab burritos and, and everything. They serve them out of trucks. I mean, you're in California, you know, street food. Everyone sort of had their place, but the Mexicans were doing Mexican stuff. We didn't care. Go do that Mexican stuff. It sounds great, because we hear the music, sounds like it's a party. And we're going to come by and like patron your businesses because you have a product that we want. It was sort of everyone just kind of living these separate lives and no one cared. And that's fine. That's actually real cool if that's what it is that you want to do. Everyone sort of live in their homogenous communities and you feel loved and supported by this very homogenous community. Sure. Good luck with that. You go out to other communities and you want to, you know, try their food or listen to their music or whatever. Sure, it's all love and all respect. But I have a problem as the same as you is when people start saying, speaking on behalf of their particular group. You're right. It's like, man, no, we all don't want that. Or you have a formulation of it that differs from mine or the further implications of this thing that you want. I can't go there with you. Or the same from outside of where outside people are like, all of you are like this and all of you want that. It's like, man, dude, don't put that on me. You don't want me putting that on you. Don't put that on me. But we are at this place of where, and it's intersectional now, right? This new word that's come up. So it's not just that you're black and white. It's are you black traditional? Are you black progressive? Are you a black socialist, communist? The same thing with white or Asian people. Do you have this larger sort of loyalty and affinity to the black community in general? Or is it very specific to ADOS or the Haitian community or the Dominican community who don't consider themselves to be black, but many of them are darker than me, right? I think we all are sort of wrestling with the legacy of our heritage and the fact that we love our family and we love our language and we love our food and we love our music and we want to champion and uphold these things versus our individual passions and desires to some people just love salsa music black people who grew up in oakland it's like man i love salsa or i love merengue and i'm going to spend all my life and my time dedicated to this art form that's not of my heritage, or you have someone like Eminem who so loves Black culture and Black music that he became one of the most prolific artists in a quote unquote Black genre, right? It's very complex trying to decide or trying to figure out where your culture and your heritage ends and your own individual wants and desires and needs where they begin. I give people space wherever they are on that spectrum I give them as much space as possible to figure that out. So long as it's done with respect and consideration for all the other people in the world wrestling with that same thing. That
0: is exactly right, Rock. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think the thing that I would add on that just as a yes and to what you Mm -hmm. just said Mm -hmm. is my sister, a little younger than me, and she's much more active in Armenian events and Armenian organizations and memes and things and all respect to her. And I support her in pursuing that. right And I get it. I think she's trying to be more in touch with something that can feel distant since our ancestors came over here a hundred years ago. yeah And I think what you said about people trying to navigate What their culture means and how close or far, quote unquote, they should be from it, and what do they owe to it, and what does it owe to them? These are very human questions. And the Black American experience in relation to culture is but one version of that same struggle that all of us go through. For me, I just explicitly, because of who I am, I don't know what it is about what makes me me, but I explicitly. I'm not ashamed of my family history. I love that my ancestors sacrificed and did what they had to do to escape terrible conditions and and Mm -hmm. bring me here and give me the life that I have. All respect to them. But I'm Michael. I'm not Michael the Armenian. And some people want to embrace that and more power to them. I think the most important thing is, to echo what you said, is... We should allow people from any background, if they want to come into and embrace a culture that they connect with in an Mm -hmm. authentic way, we should allow them in. And if there are people who were, let's say, born into a culture, we should make sure that the lines around what that culture means are not so hardly drawn that a person can never feel like they can leave in their own way, if that makes sense. And why this is such an important issue for me is I will say that there are two- moments in my life where other people put something on me and what Armenian meant to them. There are a few, but I'll kind of narrow it down to two. Mm -hmm. One was when I was in those activist circles and people would say to me, well, because you're Armenian, you understand the struggle that people of color go through, right? Right. Okay. First of all, a lot of my Armenian relatives for for historical reasons will consider themselves white. white. So I don't know how to break it to those folks, but two the entire Armenian side of my family, save my mother, is wealthy. And the entire side of my father's side of the family comes from a working class background and was my first window in what it meant to be poor. We're visiting my cousins, right? So that assumption that people would make based on a genetic feature of me was incorrect. And yet they thought they were correct by that assumption. And two, I was waiting at a bar for a friend of mine and I started shooting the breeze with a guy from the Midwest, and we were just talking, white guy, and he had had a few drinks, so He was so he was pretty intoxicated. I don't know what we were talking about. I mean, it was just something so innocuous. And then for some reason, I mentioned, I think he was asking for restaurant recommendations, and I recommended a couple Armenian ones, and just offhandedly, I just mentioned, you know, oh, because I'm Armenian, blah, 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 hummus, da, 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 and the look on his face changed like he discovered something untoward the words out of his mouth you would think it were from like a cartoon but the words out of his mouth next were oh so you're not white like that was the <laughs> that was this is how i know he was intoxicated those were the words out of his mouth as i mentioned in passing that i was half armenian right and then like he didn't want to talk with me anymore and it was such the weirdest thing because it's like you were saying earlier it's like what kind of weird solidarity did you think was happening before you learned about this genetic feature of my ancestry? (laughs) Right. Like what bond did you think we were establishing here based on this racial thing that you had in the back of your mind? Because I thought I was just making a connection with a human being whose time I was enjoying. But then underneath for him was this like, oh, it's two white guys hanging out. Whereas I thought it was two guys hanging out. Two
1: guys, yeah. And that stuff really puts me off. Yeah, that actually sounds like that. Bill Burr had a had a. Oh bit. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, and so yeah, I don't have a larger point with
1: that story. No, but it's, no, you're, no, you're, no. You're, I, I imagine you get what I'm saying. I know exactly what you're saying. Here's a not a parallel story, but something I think that touches on the sentiment. Remy, he was always in the skiing and everything, so he's my best friend. I go skiing with him. I went skiing for the first time at 15. And it's awesome. I tore up my knee that first weekend, but it's, it's awesome. I love skiing. It's one of my favorite sports. Wintertime, we would go skiing all the time. And so we're in high school. We're talking about what we're doing for this weekend or what we did last weekend and people like skiing. Black people don't ski. So I would pause and I would just, long story short, my sentiment was I'm black and I'm going skiing therefore black people ski and that was my shorthand way of saying is that black people do whatever it is that we damn well feel like doing and if you are limited in the scope of things that you want to try or you want to add to your palate fine be comfortable do whatever it is that you're gonna do but me I'm gonna do whatever it is that I want to do and by definition if I'm doing it black people are doing it because I have the blackest name out, <laughs> you know, if people want to check my ADLS score is a thing that happens, which I hate. Wait, there's a, there's a score. People will ask you, cause obviously you look black, but are you descendant of slave black? Uh, right? I see. And it's see. like, especially when they hear my name, it's like, well, did your parents immigrate? What happened? It's like, no, I'm plain. And it's something I've had to explain my, my entire life when people hear my name, where are you from? It's like, no, I'm from here. I'm as plain black as anyone, <laughs> as, as you can describe, that's me, right? My great-great-grandmother came over here in 1805. The whole thing, as black as American black as you want to be.
0: Do you find that the confusion will happen in that do immigrants or descendants of immigrants ask you that question as well?
1: Well, no. Well, it's different because so this is one thing that Black Americans don't necessarily realize is that we stand out. We look physically different from other Black people in the world. You might meet someone from Africa and you're like, well, that looks like my cousin. That looks my, like me. Yeah, sure. I'm sure there is a lot of similarities and overlaps. But when you when you're like an American Black person for all that means, and you stand in a group of Nigerians, it's very clear who's not the Nigerian. (laughs) When you're standing in in a group of Haitians or Jamaicans, it's very very clear we have a look about us. So all of that is to say, I'm as black as anyone can be. How anyone would want to define it, but as an individual, because I'm so comfortable with being black, and because I know the end game of all of this is for black people to be able to do any and everything that we want to do, just like the so-called non-oppressed people in this country. Well, I'm going to go skiing because it looked like fun. Tried it out. Turns out it was fun. So guess what? Black people are skiing and I might be the first and then I'm going to bring my boys and we're going to bring everyone else and we're going to have a great grand time on the Hill. And this is actually the legacy that I get from my mother when I couldn't figure out what it was about her She grew up in that large family. The only thing that she ever wanted to do was be left alone, to do whatever it is that she felt like doing. And that's what I get from my mother, just a hardcore nose to the grindstone, I'm going to enact my will on the world, and no one can tell me otherwise. So to parallel back to your story of how you're saying, yes, you're Armenian by heritage, but you're just trying to live life. I definitely understand that because, yeah, I'm just trying to live Rock's life as best that I can. And going back to that story from my book, when my seventh grade teacher was just like, yeah, that black boy back there. it's just like, damn, dude, really? That's it? (laughs) That's all you got? Right. That's all I am to you. Yeah. And it's not that I have a problem with being black. I love being black. I wouldn't trade being black for anything with all the supposed problems that we have. Sure. Fine. Whatever. We have problems. Everyone has problems. I like the black problem. I love this life. So I love all that. I expect all of that. Everywhere that I go, I'm always going to represent the best of black people, black excellence, we call it, right? But outside of all of that, you're gonna deal with me. You're gonna deal with my interest, you're gonna deal with my wants, my desires, my idiosyncrasies, my assholishness, all that stuff. You're gonna deal with me as an individual. So, yes, while you see me as a representative of my heritage as an avatar for all the best things that I've learned from my heritage and, and my people and this journey that we've been on in this country while I do represent that and I want that to be respected that doesn't even get you into into the front door you could probably ring the doorbell but there's so much more that you have to learn and it's going to be Tough if all you can see is the fact that I'm a black guy. If that's all you can see and you think you have it figured out, man, I'm going to hurt your feelings. So, yeah, it is tough balancing all of that because, as I was saying before, I'm focused on money and I'm focused on doing what's best for my family. So, I don't live in black neighborhoods. I live in Manhattan, which is the most non black neighborhood in the world, <laughs> right? It's, you know, the Upper East Side is not really that many black people up here but it's close to work. It's the best school district. It allowed my daughter to go to an excellent high school, but I feel the separation from other Black people. I feel obviously all the friends that I grew up with, they're back in California or out out West or maybe down South some places. I feel that separation, right? I, I love these people. It's not necessarily that they're Black, but these are the people that I've grown up with and who I'm most comfortable with but I had to leave them to pursue the fortunes of my family. And so it happens when I look around that the best resources that I can provide for my daughter happens to be in a predominantly, not just white, but a a very mixed environment. It's not exclusively Black. And I look at my daughter who is black in her own right, the way she defines it, but she didn't grow up in the church the way I did. So there's an aspect of that heritage that she gets and understands at a very surface level, but she didn't grow up in church the way that I did. She didn't hear the preacher say, I'm about to wrap up, and knowing you're going to be here for another hour because I'm about to wrap up is not a quick 10 you know minute wrap up. She didn't have to go through that. So she doesn't understand that unique aspect of heritage. She doesn't understand what it's like growing up in predominantly black neighborhoods. She doesn't understand that. And so I do wrestle with what are the things that one just picks up from their environment that is beneficial to one's Understanding of not who they are per se, but the legacy and the heritage that brought them into this world, having a deep understanding of that versus whoever she is as an individual. And I focus so heavily on providing her the resources to be the most aspirational or self actualized version of who she is as an individual. I'm always thinking, man, did I do enough to impart the rich heritage that? she comes from. And she decided to go to Howard University all on her own. I didn't push that. I went to Morehouse, and but that was my school. I didn't push anything on her. And she decided to go to Howard because she felt that the best place for her to, again, be self-actualized within herself is to go to this predominantly black environment to advance her studies. Not just her studies, because she's an A student with excellent SAT score. She could have gone anywhere, but she chose that place because she was like, this is the place where I can go and learn things that I may be missing. And it's like, right. I didn't have to do that. My job was to make sure that she was empowered to do the things that she needed to do for herself. And wouldn't you know, it all comes back into a circle. And it turns out that her self-actualization at this point in her development is to surround herself with Black people, doing her studies, advancing her career, and just really sort of immersing herself in that environment to experience what it's like.
0: Yeah. I think the key thing is that as long as everyone is able to go on their own journey and relate to their familial historical culture in the way that they want to, I think that's the key thing. Yes. like whether it's your decision to ski or your daughter's decision to choose Howard over Harvard you are making that decision of your own volition not based on pressures from the outside as your daughter is making the decision on her own volition and so her relationship to the culture and your relationship to the culture are authentic because their choices
1: you're authentically making exactly exactly and yeah i mean i can't even i can't say anything more than that that's a perfect summary for that I'm going to steal that from you. <laughs> <laughs> Have at it. But yeah, this is something that
0: I spoke on with Aisha Kombi who is a British woman of Nigerian descent. Yeah. And we talked about the tension that exists between immigrant parents and their daughters and sons and that negotiation that happens when your child is acclimating to mm. the new culture of the country you move to, right? I've struggled in articulating this similarity, but The thing you're articulating is similar to what, in its emotional core, similar to what immigrants and immigrant generations go through. And I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, which is similar to what I believe through observation is happening with Black Americans as the barriers of entry and segregation and discrimination begin to fall away, which is wrestling with the question of. What am I to myself? What am I to others in my community? How do I define myself? And how am I viewed by others? I'm just me, but I am obsessed with the idea of identity and how we wrestle with that concept. And so I always try and find whatever the universal kernel is. While recognizing that your story as a black man in America is different from mine as the son of Irish and Armenian and European Yeah immigrants, right? Our stories are different, but the emotional touchstones and how we deal with the pain of both loss and the feeling of belonging that we get when we make connections with other people, that's what I want to try and get to, Yeah, which is why I specifically wanted to have you on because I feel like you speak really honestly and vulnerably about these topics. And there are a host of other things that I wanted to talk about that were from your biography, specifically the bits about therapy and depression. Which you know, we could dedicate two hours to talk about that because yeah. my relationship to those topics is very real and raw for me. And I would love to, reading about actually. yeah, yeah, reading about your just feeling of needing to love yourself and needing love from other people, and how those things affected you and how you reflected on them. Like, man, you could have been writing about me. Yeah, in the way that you were talking about it. But that being said, I do, just for time reasons, Mm want to bring this to a close. And I recognize Mm -hmm. that you're a busy man. So I've appreciated the time that you've allowed for this conversation. This has been awesome. No, I've really enjoyed it a lot. I want to
1: touch on you. You brought some things up. I actually, when you say that, what I, I articulated sounded very much like an immigrant story. I had a podcast on the last iteration of my podcast, I did a whole story about that and I titled it My Immigrant Story. because, And that's why I'm so very appreciative of being able to talk to you because you have pulled this out. You're really tapping into that wavelength of, it is very much like an immigrant story of you have this long-term heritage, but you find yourself in a foreign land. And that foreign land, as you're saying, it might just be you're the first in this corporation or you are the first to move into this area predominated by ethnicity that's not yours. Very, very astute observation of yours. And to segue back to the book, that is actually how I wrote the book, is even though I'm black and it is about my life, the story is not about me being black, living my life. The story is about a person living a life and going through all of these very universal experiences, as you've articulated throughout this interview It just so happens to be that this character that you're looking at was a young black boy who grew up to be a black man, but all the touch points and the emotional arcs in it are all very universal. And so I just want to say thank you for seeing and recognizing what it was that I was trying to do there. Oh, of course. Well,
0: thank you for writing a book and essays that are so open, because I think that that's a both a ability and a choice to be able to write about your own experience in ways that are not just focused on, okay, let me write down the specifics of my life. It's a conscious choice, and I'm saying this is someone who comes from a writing background. It's a conscious choice that a writer must make when they're constructing their sentences, their paragraphs, their chapters, to write in such a way that gets at a universal rather than a specific. Because you could have written it in a way, That might have seemed more obtuse to me Hmm. but the way in which you wrote it which in my opinion is all based in being vulnerable and being able to identify the ways in which you've had to improve as a human being you have to admit to places in which you were ignorant you can't always be the hero of the story you sometimes even have to be the villain you have to recognize when you've misstepped. You have to recognize when you've wronged people or even wronged yourself. And so if you hadn't, and I, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to, this is going to be the Michael Compliments Rock podcast, but <laughs> it really is true to write something that other people connect with has to start from a place of vulnerability and that vulnerability does not come easy. So I want to just recognize it because it's hard. It is hard to put yourself in a place where other people might judge you. And it's hard to open up wounds that you've been trying to close and let other people see them. So thanks, Rock. I appreciate it.
1: Man, I appreciate that, man. That's awesome.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you got
1: a question, your last question. I
0: do. I got my last question. Yeah. I wrap out every chat with this one. And I think it's especially relevant to the kind of writing you do and the introspection that you practice. We're limited as individuals in all sorts of ways. We're limited in our time, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well intentioned, introspective gentleman like yourself can't be thinking of every other person, every group of people all the time. It's just impossible, right? We're too busy. We're moving from state to state. We're trying to raise a daughter. We're in relationships. So, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Oh,
1: wow. So many people. One, we can just start off with everyone. Who've really been negatively affected by COVID and the lockdowns? I've been very fortunate to keep my job. I've had to outlay extra resources to help family members and friends stay afloat, but that is a privilege that I have enjoyed. And I understand that not everyone has had that opportunity. So I have a deep well of compassion for the struggles and the anxieties that come with these situations. And so I would love to extend the wisdom of my experiences to know that this pain in the moment, it goes away as that old campaign, it gets better when you just put one foot in front of the other and just keep working at it. Life changes when you do things with integrity and honesty and you put putting your heart in it. It takes time, but the dividends pay out. And so just people really negatively affected by all of this. And that's global. I would like to say to the Uyghurs in China, that's something that percolates across the Twitter feeds. And what about China? And what about this? And everything like that. And I I will take this time. I don't know enough about their situation. And I think that's part of a problem. I think this world has experienced far too many genocides and just atrocities that way. And we always say that we're not going to do it again. And then the next time it comes up, we're going to do something about it. And it happens. And then everyone gets paralyzed and forget what it is that they said they were going to do. I don't have any answers for the Uyghur situation. And I wish that I did. Because for all intents and purposes, it seems that these people are just living their lives and they have a government that views them as an enemy and is unbound by any sense of morality or fairness and is using them for its own purposes. And so I wish that there were more conversations about them and more ideas about how we as the global community can help them in their situation, whether it's the Uyghurs or the other dozen or so genocides that are going on right now, right? These things are happening all the time. I also want to give a a special consideration and this may sound weird, to the disaffected Trump voter. I think these last couple of years have been very trying for everyone. And I know that this loss and all the things that have happened seems to be touching on a lot of fear and anxiety with people, particularly, let's say, very specifically, the white working class people. That seems to be the group that, I shouldn't say for whatever reason, but that's a group that feels that no one is listening to them, right? And I want to sort of extend to them the olive branch or the understanding that not in a condescending way, but welcome to the club. This is how Black people have felt for a long time. This is the impetus behind feminism and women wanting to be heard and more rights and Asians as they are learning to find their voice within our social structures and Hispanics. Welcome to the rest of us. I don't say that condescendingly, I'm saying that with open arms, because we all are experiencing the negative effects of marginalization, indifference, stereotyping, various isms. And I think that we all detect something rotten at the core of this country, and not just this country, but our culture, and how we've designed it, and how it doesn't seem to be working for the average of us. And so when I say welcome, I'm saying, welcome to the rest of America. Let's all in our Americanness, in our sense of fairness, see how we can better structure our communities and better structure our societies to uplift ourselves, to take care of those who maybe need a little bit extra help and consideration over these very common things that come up in life. So I want to extend some compassion and consideration to them because it seems that the disaffected Trump voter is feeling a lot of pain and anxiety about what the future will hold. And it's like, it doesn't have to be scary. It will be challenging, but there's opportunity in the challenges. And if you believe in yourself, and if you do things again with integrity and honesty. And if you are surrounding yourself with people, surrounding yourself with people who love you and care about you, and the reason why they love you and care about you is because you love and care about them. If you're surrounding yourself with good people who are trying to do good things, good things tend to happen, not every day, but over the course of things. And so that's what it is. I want people to just find more compassion for themselves by finding it for other people by finding it for themselves It's that recursive thing that we're talking about
0: (laughs) well thank you rock thank you for taking the time to speak with me thank you for the writing that you're doing and for the message you're getting out there both in twitter and elsewhere via your podcast i think you're tapping into something very real and universal and i appreciate the voice that you're adding to the conversation so thank you again for coming on the show and thank you for your work Thank you for the platform, man. I appreciate you.